3CR acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Ella. How are you this morning? Yeah, very well. Nice having you back in the studio again, Claudia. I'm getting used to this. (laughs) Yeah, it was really nice uh, coming in this morning, seeing the beautiful sunrise. Yeah, wasn't it a good one? Even the high rises in the CBD were looking um, very beautiful from my angle. So they had these orange clouds kind of reflected in the side. It was particularly nice. So um, reminding myself of how lovely it is to be out in the world early on a Wednesday morning. Yep. You don't get that after 7am. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. Sunrise will be gone. <laughs> but we are here again. We are. <laughs> and we've got a busy show today. But before we give the rundown. Um, What's been on this week in the news and um, what have you been following, Ella? Yeah, it's been a busy week. Um, So yeah, I've been really following the sex work decriminalisation bill. Um, I was just chatting to you about it before we went on air. Um, So originally, it's already passed the lower house, I should say, um, but it still needs to pass the upper house, so it's set to be debated this week. Um, Originally, it was going to be tomorrow, so I was going to get along and see it in person, but then I think they suddenly changed the time and it started last night. Um, so I caught a bit on the live stream, but it continues today. So I'm going to, yeah, see what happens there. But yeah, that's a really exciting moment. And yeah. What are the main issues? Uh, so basically sex work will be treated more like any other industry um, that needs regulation rather than a potentially criminal one. Um, so it'll mean, yeah, greater freedoms. And I think ultimately, yeah, more protections. Greater um, equity. Greater equity, yeah, something we've been looking at is um, financial discrimination. So I'm hoping they put in some measures there or some clauses uh, to make sure sex workers, yeah, have the same rights as everyone else when trying to open a bank account or get a home loan, that kind of thing. Hopefully that will have a real impact on destigmatising this area of work. Yeah, absolutely. And it should, yeah, make things a bit easier for sex workers to be their own boss. Seems to have been a a big uh, week in the sexual area with Scott Morrison also issuing his public apology yesterday to Brittany Higgins and um, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tamer are going to be talking today in the press uh, club so we'll hear their formal response. Grace Tamer's already indicated that she wants action not just words and uh, I think that's um, echoed by Catherine Murphy this morning in The Guardian also uh, saying yeah, let's um, let's wait for the action and the change. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it seems like a um, conveniently timed apology <laughs> when they're all set to speak uh, at press. So yeah, exactly. It's yeah about action and not about good PR. <laughs> so what's on for the show today? Yeah, as we're saying, we've got a packed show today, which is exciting. Um, so first up, I'm going to be speaking with Annie Butler from the um, Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation. Um, So she's going to be running me through the aged care crisis, basically. Um, There's been a a rally on at Parliament yesterday, so I want to hear how that went. 
Um, and yeah, they've been trying to get some uh, more resources and more attention to yeah the crisis that's ongoing. Uh, workers are still having to pay for uh, rapid antigen tests as and yeah are just generally very overworked and stressed. So I'm looking forward to hearing their key demands and what they want to see happen. Yeah, I had a chat with a friend who um, works in the sector, and um, yeah, the stories I was hearing firsthand from her were um, really really. Really hard to hear, you know, workers just put in positions where they've got no control over their circumstances or conditions and very overworked. Yeah, absolutely. And as the rest of the world's um, turned back to so-called normal, it, um, yeah, I think it's a particularly isolating experience um, mm. to see, yeah, everyone else returning when, yeah, it's still a major crisis and people are running on empty. Exactly. Well, uh, we will follow that interview with an interview with Gunai Kurnai author Veronica Gori. I'm really excited to be talking to her. She is the author of Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience, and she won the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize last week, which is Australia's richest prize for writing. So, yeah, she won the Indigenous category and then she won the overall prize. Um, I just finished reading the book yesterday and um, yeah, it's it's a very powerful, fantastic book. Um, so we're going to be excited to hear from her about um, how she feels about winning, but also about some of the issues she raises and her personal experiences. Oh, well, book. yeah, that should be a good one. I've heard her interviewed elsewhere, so I'll be excited to hear the Claudia spin on it. But um, <laughs> she's very well spoken. I enjoyed hearing her. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, that'll be at uh, half past seven, I think. Excellent. And, yeah, after that one, we're going to hear from uh, research fellow Sophie Yates from University of New South Wales. Um, so she wrote an article last week that caught my eye. Um, it's about a research project she had um, co-authored with some other research fellows, which was looking into why, um, even though men and women experience disability at even rates, uh, only a third of NDIS participants uh, are women, um, which is pretty shocking. I was in, um, I can't say I was totally surprised, but that figure was, yeah, pretty alarming. Um, so they've done a qualitative study, so it's looking into possible reasons. They spoke to over 30 women um, about their experience with the NDIS, either women who are already on the NDIS or trying to get onto it. Mm, that'll be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then we'll have Alice on the line. Yeah, and then at the end, Alice is going to join us remotely, um, and she'll be speaking with Homes Not Prisons. Um, so she'll be speaking with Mina and Sarah. Um, and they're going to fill her in on their organisation and an upcoming event tonight, which is being held by Rahu, uh, the renters' uh, union. So we're going to, yeah, hear more from Alice after eight. Busy, busy. Busy. <laughs> all right. Uh, before we get into all that, let's ease in with a song. Uh, let's listen to Kian again, who we had on last week. This is Better Things.
or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break, we heard Dorothy Ashby with Little Sunflower. And now we're going to take a look at the aged care crisis. And I'm joined this morning by Annie Butler, the Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation. Good morning, and welcome to 3CR, Annie. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Now, yesterday, I understand there was a rally outside Parliament House uh, in relation to the age crisis. Can you tell us a little about the rally and why you were there? 
That's I certainly can. So uh, we went with some aged care nurses and aged care workers um, to hold a COVID-safe protest on the first sitting day of Parliament for the year to raise again our very serious concerns about the increasing crisis that the sector sees itself in and a crisis which we believe should never have been allowed to happen. So we were going this time to demand again immediate action from the government because what we have just seen is way too many delays. The most recent example of which is just on Monday, the Prime Minister announced that the ADF would be called in to give some practical logistical support to the aged care sector, assist with you know, support activities, but also with teams that have some clinical and medical skills to actually uh, assist with clinical and direct care activities. We've been asking for that support for more than a month. And so because of the delay, we have to ask the question, how many people have suffered in that time? How many people actually died unnecessarily or too prematurely in that time? And that's just an example of what we have seen over the last decade of how governments treat the aged care sector. It's always just too little too late. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, it's really been at um breaking point for some time. And I think it's, um, uh, even though the rest of uh, the country is aware of it. I think people aren't um, perhaps just quite aware of how um, difficult it is both uh, for residents in these facilities and also for the workers who are really overworked. Um, can you give us an idea of uh, yeah, the conditions for aged care workers and nurses? Yeah, right now there is such a critical point and you know, truly terrible in way too many circumstances. We've got about just over 2,500 nursing homes across the country more than half of them are dealing with a COVID outbreak. Uh, and with COVID wow. amongst both residents and staff, there are thousands of staff who've had to be furloughed and so therefore there are critical shortages and this is already, this is on top of a sector that was already both chronically, critically and I would say dangerously understaffed. So we're hearing stories are at sort of even the worst crisis point that I've ever heard, but unfortunately we've been hearing some terrible stories for you know way too long. But recently we know that registered nurses are dealing with staffing ratios of one to I heard one to more than a hundred and seventy residents. Oh my god, we, that's yeah, really unsafe. It's it's just not possible. It's it is just not possible and so when and we know where care workers on a night shift there's one of them to 40 residents that's not possible either and these sorts of um these sorts of ratios are happening across the country especially acute in victoria and new south wales except in victoria's state government run nursing homes that where they do have legislative ratios and in queensland state government run nursing homes but we're also hearing just the burden on workers who are, you know, paid 10, 15, 20% less if you're a nurse than you are in the, uh, the public and acute sector. And if you're an aged care worker, you're very often paid less than you would be if you were working for Woolworths. And so they're being asked to do double shifts longer. We're hearing where 
uh, workers are being asked to do 12-hour shifts for seven days in a row just to fill the gaps. And where the gaps can't be filled, we know where residents are just being left not fed, not given a drink, left in wet incontinence pads for hours and hours, and families aren't being allowed in either. So it is, it is literally a crisis point. Our workers are burning out, and what really concerns us, we get through this, what kind of recovery those workers might be able to make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all the knock-on effects. It doesn't just happen here. And um, you recently had a national survey where you asked uh, ANMF members to share their workplace experiences. What are some of the key findings you had from that? Well, some of the things that I've, what I've just some of the things I've just expressed to you, and just uh, you know those issues were particularly acute in New South Wales. From our survey, to to let you know. Our survey is not actually closed yet, so we've just been pulling interim findings um, as we've been collecting the information. We are also collecting information not just from aged care, our aged care members, but across sectors as well. But we're seeing, again, the persistent um, burden on workers and and the, the stress that the pandemic has placed on nurses particularly and aged care workers particularly, I mean, many frontline workers across the country. But the big difference for our, like, frontline health workers and aged care workers is not only do they have to cope with the stress of the pandemic and all the other things that we, just as normal citizens, have been having to deal with over the last two years, they have to bear witness to the suffering and the pain and those people who've actually died from COVID in so many circumstances had to die alone and without their families. And so the the emotional burden for them has just been much higher, I think, over the last two years. And many of them are truly reaching a breakout point. It is truly burnout. And so we really need to find ways to support um, those workers to support our nurses across the country. One of the things that we'd really like to see a government put in place, and we're calling for this in the lead-up to the next federal election, is that in Victoria there's a a really excellent Nurses and Midwives Health Program run, and that's a program run by nurses and midwives for nurses and midwives to help them navigate both the stresses of their work, the stresses of their work life and, and their lives generally, and it's offer them real practical support and enable them to keep going. We'd like to see that program be made national and the government fund that. And in, in, you know, in the sort of spending we see from governments, it would not cost a lot of money, but it would be a wonderful thing that could make such a practical daily difference to nurses' working lives. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, it's a huge emotional burden um, and it's not sustainable um, long term. And um, what response have you had from the government so far? Uh, not much at this stage. Yeah, so the uh, I'm guessing the two payments of up to $400 don't really cut it when it comes to years of um, being overworked and poor conditions. Look, our members are just insulted by that. And I mean, you're a very lowly paid worker. Of course, any additional income is going to be useful. But the fact that they think 
and we we have to think about uh, we we can't think about this any other way than cynically. Unfortunately, they were in the lead up to election, a couple of months out of before an election, and this is what's offered. But the government refuses to commit to supporting a genuine wage increase, a wage increase for aged care workers across the sector. Uh, the ANMF and two of the other aged care unions. We have a case with the Fair Work Commission right now, calling uh, calling for a 25% wage increase for aged care workers across the board. We know that many in the sector, so industry, um, aged care employers, they're they're supportive of this case, um, but the government refuses to participate. So that doesn't. Well, I guess you have to ask the question, what kind of message does that send um, from the government to the level of value they have for aged care workers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's important work and, yeah, it needs to be valued. All right. Um, That's all we've got time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us, Annie, and, yeah, best of luck. Yeah, thanks so much and have a good rest of the day. Thanks for your interest. You too. Thank you. And that was Annie Butler from the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR, and before the break, we had oral risk with asphyxiation. Thanks, Ella. I just want to uh, give a little warning to our listeners that our next segment may contain material that is disturbing, and um, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who might be tuning in, uh, there might be material that is triggering and uh, raises feelings and recollections of trauma. So... Just a little note in case you would like to tune out, but if you would like to stay on the line, we have a very special guest. She is the winner of the Victorian Premier's Prize for Literature 2022, as well as the Prize for Indigenous Writing. She has written a memoir called Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience. It's the story of the resilience of one woman who survives family violence and racism. She's a proud Gunai Kurnai woman, a former police officer and mother of three, Veronica Gori. Welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Hello. me. Absolutely lovely to have you with us. And congratulations on your wonderful achievement and the acknowledgement of your incredible work. Um, Before we get on to that, I just wanted to, having finished reading the book yesterday, I just wanted to ask you, how did you feel after you finished writing it? Was it a huge huge relief to have um, got all of that experience out and sort of made sense of it in some type of um, form that made sense to you, I suppose? Um, it was it was a long process. Um, yes, that was over one when I'd finished and it was ready for publication. Very exhausted, I expect, as well. Yeah, emotionally as well. It took an emotional toll on me to write that um, and to reread it and edit as well. Um, it was quite difficult. But mm. we got there in the end, um, which is so amazing. And how uh, did you feel last week, learning that you have been awarded this incredible prize? Um, have you come down to earth yet, or does it still feel incredible? I'm still in disbelief. Um, I can't believe that I've won that. Um, to be nominated for two awards for such a prestigious award, the Victorian Premier's uh, Literary Award, I was overwhelmed by that, and to actually win one, um, you know, against amazing writers such as Chelsea Watergo and Evelyn Marulan. Absolutely. You know, they're so amazing. Um, and to win, and then win the overall prize, it's, I'm just over the moon. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a real uh, acknowledgement of both your writing and the story that you're telling. And um, I wanted to talk about that with you now. The book has quite an epic quality I felt um, both in the spectrum of the personal experiences you share and also 
the way it illuminates two of Australia's biggest social problems, family violence and racism. And we'll talk about those uh, shortly. But for me, the most compelling part was you, uh, the truth teller, the hero, the survivor. Were you aware of the strength of your own character as you were writing the book and that it would become a real driver in telling your story? Um, I'm like, my, my ancestors were the first storytellers anyway. Like, um, we've been telling stories for, you know, thousands of years. And, um, you know, and I've grown up listening to the old people yarn up and tell their stories. So, um, I've, I guess I've, you know, I've, you know, hopefully it was handed down to me. But, um, yeah, and I didn't know I had a book in me, but um, I'm glad I wrote about it because I think it's an important read. People need to know what um, what colonisation, the direct result of colonisation has had on my people and especially my family. And, um, you know, and I implore other people to speak up and tell their stories as well. Like in Victoria right now, we've got the Truth Telling Commission, the treaty, and um, right now it's vitally important that our stories are amplified and heard. And I think it's so more, it resonates in a different way when you hear a story told through the lens of a particular person's experience rather than, um, you know, as a general experience. Um, it, yeah, it's really powerful to, to connect with you in the book and then try to possibly imagine what those experiences would have, um, would have been like and the ongoing trauma that comes from them it, it's yeah it's it's very successful in in that way I um yeah I really recommend it to anybody that hasn't read it I got your sorry I got your text last night saying that you just finished my book and you're blown away and that was just such a huge compliment um you know it's my story resonates with a lot of people not just my people but um a lot of people and if I empower, um, especially women, to speak up about um, the abuse and, you know, that they've, sub- they've been subjected to in their lives, speak up about it. Don't, don't be silent. Yeah, well, I'm, I feel like it's going to be a very um, powerful book in that way. And yeah, I look forward to, to more stories that illuminate for the broader population what this trauma really is about that it's very real and it's very now and intergenerational trauma does get talked about a lot but through the experiences and so many family members that are entwined in your story and yeah it it really is very visceral yeah so not only is it my story it's my family's it's my children's story um people need to remember that my children are right there with me when most of these occurred so be kind to my children, you mum. Yeah, and family is a really big theme in the in the story. Um, while the book shares a lot of trauma, it also shows the enduring power of your family and family relationships and the wonderful love that um, is a real anchor for you, particularly your father. So, yeah, I, I like the way it's it's very balanced in the spectrum of human sort of experience and difficulties and strengths and yeah I look I still my father lives with me now and it's my time to give back to him so I care for him now in his um latter years and um 
you know, he's an amazing, he's still an amazing man and, you know, keeps me on my toes for sure. <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other way. It's like um, oh, 51st States. Or if, um, if anyone's watched King of Queens, he's Arthur. <laughs> yeah, Arthur. I'm dealing with Arthur, everyone. <laughs> Hello to Arthur if you're listening this morning. <laughs> no, he's just walked past me. He gave me a little morning wave. Turning to the uh, more graphic part of the mm. the story, um, I just wanted to talk about police culture. You present a, a very scathing judgment of police culture in Australia based on your experiences of racism and you actually go so far as to say that joining the police force is one of your life's biggest regrets. I wondered, given where um, you're at in the process and the feelings that you have, whether you have any desire to use your experience to advocate for alternative forms of policing and justice and what you would like to see happen? I, I like, the experiences I had with police were um, horrendous. Um, I found that the time I was policing, and it's still happening today, so as I was growing up, I witnessed a lot of police brutality towards my people, and um, whilst I was in handcuffs at the time as well, um, and then later joining the police when I was 29, 30 years old, I, I still witnessed this, but I was I was actually a police officer. And, um, and I'm 50 years old now and it's still happening. Um, the culture of police will never change. Um, but also, we don't need police. Um, with Aboriginal people, um, when we have crisis or conflict, you know, in the home or whatnot, our, our first responders are our family anyway, so... And I reckon, I think if we could build a community where we, you know, where we're there for each other and, you know, and help each other out, we don't need police. And there are some programs such as the one in Burke where community-led justice reinvestment programs are divesting the, um, the money that would be spent on um, criminal justice, traditional law enforcement back into communities to to allow people, Aboriginal people, to decide and implement their own strategies. And it would be great to see more of that developed in Australia. Yeah, I want to, I want to touch on incarceration as well. I don't think that's a form of um, punishment as well. And it's not like... it's The state calls it rehabilitation. No-one's getting rehabilitated in there. We're getting, especially with my people, they're getting killed. Um, and not just my people. I mean, in the last week, we've had two people die in custody. Um, sorry, three. Um, and also, we've had over 500 deaths in custody since the Royal Commission into mm. Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, you know, since the, the recommendations were handed down. And it's, I just find it outrageous. Like, so when the recommendations were handed down, the government was funding programs for community, within the communities, for for the community. And then shortly after, they defund it. So they've set us up to fail anyway. Mm. Um, so, and I just want to touch on the government. Um, if I, I really, My heart goes out to all the trans kids right now. Um, I, I look, I could cry right now. But um, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this with our poxy 
bloody government um, and his religious beliefs. Um, and for the families and especially the parents and the siblings of um, trans kids right now, um, we support you and we'll do whatever it takes. Thank you. Sorry about that. I just wanted to get in, get in that because it's just—it's so heartbreaking that it is the government of the day has so much power to alter one's life and the effects of um, excluding and discriminating against a, tra- a trans child will have um, lifelong effects. And the object <sighs> of making children feel secure and belong in a community um, is superseded by these religious doctrines that prevent them from doing that? Yeah, look, I hate religion. I hate churches. Um, you know, it was the, it was religious people that put my people on missions, the missionaries, and tied my people to trees and flogged them with, you know, branches of the trees. They spoke their language. Um, you know, they're the most evil people, but, you know, each to their own. You know, and if yeah, I just I don't I, the government of today is a joke. Um, and come come um, election time, I hope people remember this. In your acceptance speech, when you were given the award, you commented on the irony that it was the state government giving you an award for this book when they were the ones who carried out the atrocities against your people and the ongoing traumas, the uh, the impact of colonisation has had, yet you said, I forgive you. But I said, nah, gam, and I don't forgive you. Um, so I was only joking, um, and that was in reference to the Dixie Chicks, because I was, someone had a, we had a conversation, I had a conversation with someone earlier about that, and um, yeah, so that was in reference to the Dixie Chicks. Um, but, um, I, I don't forgive the government, um, nor do I forget um, the intergenerational trauma that my ancestors have been um, been through, my, and especially my grandmother, um, has been handed down um, to my father, then to me, and to my children. And what I'm trying to do is stop, you know, break the cycle of trauma, so that my grandchildren aren't traumatised by this. Well, thank you for writing your book and getting it out there um, so that more people know that it's happening and being part of that process. Um, yeah, it's such an important book and I'm so, so happy for you that it was acknowledged in the way it's been. We would love to Thank keep you. chatting to you, um, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thank you so much, Veronica Gorey, for sharing your experiences with us and talking to us this morning. It's been an absolute Thank you for pleasure. Having me. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. That was Veronica Gorey, winner of the Victorian Premier's Literature. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. Animales News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. 
listening to 3CR that was Antenna with Camino de Sol. Um, we're going to look at our next interview at the uh, female disability population and why they make up so little of the NDIS uh, population. Um, so our next guest is Sophie Yates, a research fellow with the University of New South Wales. And Sophie's been part of a research project which has been speaking to women with a disability about their experiences either on the NDIS or trying to get onto the NDIS. And they've been trying to come up with some possible answers as to why women do make up so little of the population on the NDIS. So I spoke to Sophie yesterday afternoon. um, And first up, I asked her to tell me about the research and some of the findings. So this project started back in 2019 when my colleagues and I found out that only 37% of NDIS participants were women or girls. And we were pretty shocked by that. And we also knew that there's pretty consistent data worldwide that about half the disability population are women. So why only 37% uh, female participation rate in the NDIS? Um, And we realised that women's disability advocacy groups have been concerned for some time about this low female participation rate, but we couldn't find any published academic research on the topic. Um, So we decided to dip our toe into the water and just do some interviews with women to find out some issues and some directions for future research. Um, So, yeah, it was an interview-based study, and we we really just wanted to find out um, what to do 
where the missing data might be and some themes. So what we did is talk to 30 women in depth about their experiences with disability services and with the NDIS in particular. Um, some of them were on the NDIS or had applied for it and some were thinking about applying. So we wanted to understand what the barriers were for them generally and whether there was anything that they thought was gendered or, or was different for women as compared to men or whether there was anything that we thought was gendered because, of course, we analysed the data with gender and quality in mind. Um, and I should say that although we heard a lot of sad or frustrating stories, there were a few who'd had really great transformative experiences with the NDIS. So I might be a little bit down on NDIS experiences here, but it's definitely not the whole story. It can be a really great thing for people and for women. And can you tell us a bit about how the NDIS works for people who aren't familiar with it? Um, and in particular, the <clears throat> application process. Yeah. Uh, so just briefly, the NDIS is a federally funded individualized funding system. Um, for those people with disability who have high support needs. It only supports about 10% of people with disability, so those that need the most help. And, and what it does is allocate a certain amount of money to a person, um, and then they can choose services and supports to buy with that money, or um, someone else can do it on their behalf. And this is supposed to be done to help them achieve personal goals um, that they decide on with someone called a planner. So it might be to live more independently, it might be to get into employment, that kind of thing. And how it works is you meet a planner to talk to them about what you need and you come up with a plan together that then gets funding allocated to it. So the ideal version of it is that you get money to buy the services that you need to help you achieve things that are important to you. Um, that's, that's the ideal thing and that's the way it works for some people. Um, but research has found that applying for the scheme can be pretty hard. For starters, you have to gather a lot of evidence um, to prove that you qualify this, for the scheme, which can be expensive and very time consuming. Um, you have to see your GP maybe, um, and you have to see medical specialists and get reports and get functional assessments and submit a long and complicated form, which can be even more complicated if you have a complicated life, if that makes sense. Um, so some questions can be pretty difficult to answer if you have a fluctuating disability, for example. Um, and then, so the process can take a really long time. And we've heard from people who had to chase the NDIA, um, the National Disability Insurance Agency, a number of times to see where their application was up to. They've, they've heard or realised that the NDIA made errors in their systems that were very difficult to fix. And so, yeah, it can just be a long and complicated process to get onto the scheme, let alone how complex it is once you actually get onto the scheme. Yeah, absolutely. And I was excited to see your research because I've heard a lot about how difficult it is to get on it, but I haven't heard so much from a gendered perspective. And that's because um, there hasn't been anything. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a disability sport worker myself and I know I don't work in policy. I work on the floor, but even people who do work in policy find it difficult. So oh, that's it's not surprising. And um, this issue of having an overly complex administrative process in order to access support, not unique to the NDIS, there's actually a term for it which you use a lot in your research. Can you explain this concept of an administrative burden and why even though I think we've all experienced frustrating battles with bureaucracy, this burden often falls disproportionately to those with the least resources? <laughs> That's absolutely true. Um, 
So yes, administrative burden is the term that we've been using. And we just think it's a useful lens to analyze all of this complexity. Um, and it comes from um, some researchers in the US um, called uh, Donald Moynihan and uh, Pamela Hurd. They wrote a book about it a few years ago. And there's just been quite a lot of research um, increasingly on how complex it, the work clients have to do in order to access a government program. That's basically what administrative burden refers to. And it's also increasingly being applied to the work that other other parties like um, intermediaries, like um, disability support workers or uh, service providers might have to do also to get people onto the scheme and to, to administer the scheme on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, there are three main components of administrative burden, um, which is how hard it is to learn how to apply for a program and to use the program. So learning costs, psychological costs, which is, is a big one, um, it's how emotionally draining or confronting it is. So that kind of um, gets at some of the stuff that it, it's, it's more than just the hours that you put into um, filling in forms and sending emails. It's also how terrible <laughs> this might make you feel for various reasons. Yeah, and then true. there is compliance costs. That's the third aspect, which is how difficult it is to comply with program rules and requirements and to, to understand them and to know when you can and can't have something and um, to make all the notes that you need and the spreadsheets that you need to keep track of everything. And what are some of the things you heard from these women you spoke to about how the administrative burden might come into play here with the NDIS? So we found that for many people, the NDIS seems to score high on all three elements of administrative burden. But in, in our research, we started thinking that this might be higher for women than for men um, because, well, one of the biggest things is that women do so much of the caring work for other family members that they often don't have time to think about these things for themselves. So uh, the vast majority of single parents are women most of the primary carers to people with disability are women. And a lot of those primary carers have disability themselves. And just in general, there's a mountain of research rather showing that women do this kind of, we call it reproductive labor, the work of family. Um, so this is something that we heard from women that we interviewed as being a barrier, but it's also been feedback we've had a lot since people read an article that we published last week. They read it and went, wow, this is my life. I'm so glad that you're looking into this. Um, so that's one reason that administrative burden might be higher for women. Um, but also when you, when you look at the things that men are more likely to be diagnosed with and what women are more likely to be diagnosed with, the picture of disability is a bit different. Like there's a lot of overlap, but men are more likely to be diagnosed with things like autism, developmental delay, acquired brain injury, um, spinal cord injury, sort of young men getting injuries um, and then uh, being disabled because of that. So it can be more straightforward to get onto the scheme with those kinds of diagnoses. So the, the application process, therefore, can be less burdensome. Um, women tend to have more pain and energy type disabilities, more autoimmune type disabilities that are harder to diagnose and also that fluctuate day to day. So the path to application is less straightforward. Yeah, I wanted to um, ask you about that in particular, yeah. is this reflective of a broader issue in health uh, where conditions and issues that affect women or predominantly women, particularly uh, chronic pain conditions, uh, tend to receive mm -hmm. less funding and research than men's health or conditions which affect men? 
Yeah. So this thing about males being diagnosed with certain disabilities more often than females, um, and, and especially young males being diagnosed with certain disabilities, this is the explanation that the NDIS gives for the gender disparity. Um, like autism is about a third of the scheme, right? And there, there are three times as many males with autism than females on the NDIS. But there is research out there about how women are less likely to get diagnosed if they have autism um, because it presents differently in males and females. And in general, the male presentation has been seen as a default. And so therefore it's much harder to get diagnosed if you're a woman or a girl. And this did come up in, in our research. Um, one woman we talked to spent, spent 12 years trying to get diagnosed with autism. And wow. once she did, yeah, exactly. Wow. And once she did get diagnosed, she got onto the scheme, the NDIS, basically right away because if you have a certain sort of um, functional impairment level with autism, then it's very relatively straightforward to get onto the scheme. Um, but she said that during this 12 years, no one had ever suggested autism to her and she felt that that was because she was a woman. And it was, it was her self-advocacy, basically, that got her there. She kept saying, look, I think this might be the thing. Why don't you look into this more? So that was quite a battle for her. So we think that women and girls might need more support to get diagnosed with autism and, and then to apply for the NDIS. Um, and then things like developmental delay, that's 2.5 times more boys than girls on the scheme or um, males than females. But then there are the disabilities that women are more likely to have, you know, like multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases, pain disorders. These disabilities, um, as we've touched on, they're hardly supported by the scheme at all. Um, I'm not even sure what the numbers are because when the NDIS releases the figures for most of these, um, most disability types, they don't actually drill down that far into um, individual conditions but um, anecdotally we know that people with chronic fatigue for example there are just hardly any of them on the scheme and you can get onto it if you have chronic fatigue but it's really hard and you basically have to be bedridden um, to qualify so to answer your question I think this definitely does link to this this issue that's been coming more and more to light about how medical research has been disproportionately based on men and prioritizing men's issues. So we definitely do need to um, spend more time understanding conditions that are more common in women and how conditions might present differently in men and women. And relatedly, women talk about their symptoms being dismissed, that they find it harder in general to get diagnosed, that doctors may not listen to them, and if you feed all that into a system where you need a lot of medical documentation to get access, you might find, and I think we do find, women being disadvantaged. All right. And um, a lot of the rhetoric around the NDIS and, and disability in general um, it focuses on the cost of disability or often treats people with a disability as this burden. Um, but we don't actually hear a lot about what people with a disability can contribute. Um, why is making NDIS more accessible and lessening this administrative burden good, not just for people with a disability, but for everyone in society? A lot of people have disability. You know, there are about 20% of the population has some kind of disability. Um, so they, they are part of society. They already contribute a lot to society. And um, the point of the NDIS um, should be, and, and, and is supposed to be about 
helping them to um, realise and, and live a full life and contribute as much as anyone else to society. Um, so this isn't really my area of expertise, but I will say that many of my colleagues have been saying this for years, that there's far too much focus on what the scheme costs now and not nearly enough understanding that it's designed to increase productivity um, to prevent future health and care costs down the track and to support people into employment um, to intervene early and prevent people's health and well-being going downhill later in life to the point where they need a lot more care. And, and, and as I mentioned, uh, a lot of people who care for people with disabilities have disabilities themselves. So, yeah, a focus on costs incurred now rather than costs saved later is a real problem and a focus on costs at the expense of um, what we're doing with this scheme, which is um, just supporting people to be as much of a part of society as they can. It's really important to keep that in mind and the rhetoric is too often in the wrong direction. Yeah, absolutely. And all this energy and effort that's going into just trying to access adequate support could be placed elsewhere, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yes, as one of my colleagues pointed out, um, the, the fact that people um, keep saying to us being on the NDIS is like a full-time job is a little bit ironic because one of the things the NDIS is supposed to do is enable people with disability to enter the workforce. So if they're spending all this time on accessing and complying with the scheme, then um, that's time and energy they don't have to be in the workforce. All right. And um, do you have any suggestions for how the NDIA should address these issues? Um, yes and no. So <laughs> one of the things we keep saying is that we think that NDIA should have a gender strategy. Um, and we don't know exactly what should go in it, though, because we think that it should be developed in consultation with women with disability and their representative organisations. Um, and as I said, they've been working hard for years on these issues and they are the reason that we're doing this research in the first place. So this kind of nothing about us without us idea, this strategy should exist, but it should be developed with women with disability. But um, one thing as a researcher I can say that's really needed is better information on how many women and girls might be eligible how many apply for the scheme and how many get onto the scheme, just to get a better idea of who are the missing women and of the ones that maybe even don't get to the application stage, what really is it that's preventing them from doing that? So we have some idea based on our research, but, you know, as I said, it's exploratory research. <laughs> yep, surely a more accurate picture will let us identify the issues Absolutely. more clearly. And data issues would be part of um, agenda strategy. Um, other things that might help are training, uh, gender training, but only as part of a comprehensive package of other interventions. Training by itself is really very helpful. Um, there could also be targets introduced for getting more women onto the scheme. Maybe that's one possible thing. Um, and removing the financial barriers to applying, like paying for appointments and assessments and specialists and that kind of thing, that could be helpful. Well, it could be really helpful. But in general, just... Um, really having a good hard look at all the work that NDIS clients are having to do on behalf of the scheme and just thinking about how to reduce that from every angle um, seems to be very much warranted. And finally, can you recommend any services or other avenues of support for women who have a disability and might be looking for help navigating the system? Um, yeah, this is a really tough one because 
Advocacy services have been more and more defunded since the NDIS came in. That's something that comes up in research um, in general and other research, but also people mentioned it in our research. There are quite a few advocacy services around, but they're overwhelmed, they're underfunded. So many people need help and, and can't get it at the moment. So it's a general theme where people say the NDIS has kind of sucked up all the disability energy and funding around. So this leaves fewer, fewer services for everyone else who maybe, you know, because the NDIS is only 10% of people with disability. So the other 90%, there seems to be less around for them. And the other thing is we've sort of got the irony of a, the NDIS being a scheme that relies a lot on self-advocacy, which is another gendered angle that we haven't maybe had time to go into today. Um, but at the same time, advocacy services are being defunded. So that's uh, not an ideal situation. But having said that, there is an advocacy service lookup on the Department of Social Services website. Um, so that's disabilityadvocacyfinder.dss.gov.au. And you can kind of put in the parameters of what you want and see what there is in your area. Right. Um, another thing can be talking to your GP. Uh, a lot of GPs um, uh, understand, not, not all of them, but they, some of them understand how to apply and can help you to apply. Um, and some women that I talked to did go that route to get on the scheme. And then someone I know suggested calling the local council um, and speaking to the Metro access officer who sometimes has resources to help. So these are all suggestions that I've come across recently trying to help women who've contacted me since I posted about my research and they're like, I don't know how to get help. <laughs> well, maybe these are some ways. All right, thanks very much, Sophie. You're listening to 3CR and that was research fellow Sophie Yates uh, talking to me yesterday about her research project which speaks to women with a disability and asked them about their experience both on the NDIS or trying to apply to the NDIS. Uh, in a moment we're going to hear from Homes Not Prisons uh, but in the meantime this is Line with You've Got a Woman. <laughs>
You're listening to 3CR and we just heard the line with You've Got a Woman. 3CR Community Radio has partnered with RHW, Rahu, the Renting and Housing Union, and special guests from the Support Network for International Students and Homes Not Prisons are going to be there for an open discussion on Zoom tonight um, on organising beyond the pandemic for community solidarity and housing justice. The pandemic exposed and exacerbated pre-existing failures in housing justice renting and policy in Victoria, which we know all too well endured the world's longest lockdowns. We're really lucky to have with us today Sarah Stalionos and Mina Hayden from Homes Not Prisons to have a chat about the event um, that, yeah, they're going to be discussing today and what they want to discuss. So Sarah and Mina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having firstly, us. Firstly, I'd love to know a little bit about you both. So how you got involved in Homes Not Prisons. And Sarah, if I could throw that to you, that would be wonderful. Uh, yep, certainly. Um, so, so I got involved with Homes Not Prisons due to my own lived experience of being, you know, criminalised, incarcerated, as well as I do have a long extensive history of homelessness as well um and I had been previously working doing systemic advocacy for a CLC a community legal center if people don't know what that is um and and yeah and then I met um putting the campaign together and I said I want to be part of it and here I am and I'm current, currently studying um, a double degree, so I'm doing psych science, mm-hmm. bachelor in criminology and criminal justice. Um, okay. And how um, has has that new kind of education you're studying, how is that affecting the work that you're doing at Homes Not Prisons? Um, it's actually helping me to get a more insight and it's actually helping to build, you know, my my drivers, I guess, within myself to, you know, to see what the systemic um, issues are and to see, you know, the broader issue. It's not an individual issue. It's a public issue, you know, and these are things that need to be addressed and the, you know, and the government's doing a very poor job at addressing the cause. All they're doing is band-aiding, you know, the symptoms and, you know, further perpetuating more more harm. Um, you know, when the solution is there, build more public housing, support the people, build, do things that are going to help the people. Why continuously, you know, um, why continuously expand prisons or build more prisons when it's just showing that what they're wanting to do is continuously just keep, you know, turning people into commodities and, you know, their circumstances into a commodity, really. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Sarah. And Mina, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with Homes Not Prisons as well. Absolutely. Um, I am a social work student, so studenting as well, almost done. Um, and I'm an intake worker for one of the organisations uh, undersigned on the Homes Not Prisons Coalition. Uh, so I work with criminalised women and gender non-binary people as well. Uh, and I got involved in the campaign through being lucky enough to come into a Zoom that was organised to talk about the issue and uh, they've let me stay around to help the wheels turn on the campaign and, yeah, just kind of be a part of it like that and things from my own experiences with, you know, uh, prisons, police and housing insecurity, I think it's something that's close to my heart. So it's, yeah, it's nice to be organising mm. and working on a campaign like this. Mm-hmm. 
And the event tonight is going to be speaking also about COVID, how that has exacerbated problems and stuff like that. But could we take a moment to just remember what the pre-COVID, pre-lockdown world was like? I mean, from your experience, Sarah, what what was that like? What were your priorities then with homes or prisons or, or what did you see? Um, so if I'm going off what, I mean, Homes Not Prisons was built throughout COVID. So like the campaign was built throughout COVID, um, you know, which is, which is amazing. And, you know, it just shows you know, the passion and the drive, you know, for people to volunteer their time, to come together, to, you know, work together, to do whatever we can to get the message out there, you know, um, and also, um, but prior to COVID, like, put COVID to the side, like I experienced homelessness for on and off for 15 years, you know, and like from the age of 14 up until um, 20, 29, um, you know, and today I'm 32. So like, you know, for a very long time of my life, I experienced the recurring effects of being homeless, you know, living in my car, being sexually abused, being physically abused, ending up in relationships, constantly you know, resorting to drugs and stuff because they're the places where, you know, you could have a roof over your head because, you know, but they're also the, the places where, you know, um, where a lot of harm was caused. Um, you know, and then I was eventually, you know, doing things as well that eventually later in life led me into, into prison, um, you know, but I didn't have a home and that was another reason why I didn't get bails because, well, you don't have a fixed address, so we're not giving you bail, you, you, you're a risk, high risk and you're going to prison, you know. So there's like that kind of, um, is that mentality and that, you know, prisons aren't homes, prisons aren't for, you know, rehabilitation of any sort. What they're doing is they're just constantly just removing people from all any human right, you know, and, and you know, whatever, um, before COVID, like, like the you know, nothing's changed, you know, the rent's, Rent has, has increased or gone up or, you know, and, and Centrelink payments have still stayed the same. You know, it was really good for people to start receiving, you know, extra bonuses and stuff like that at the start of the, the first pandemic, uh, the first lockdown and stuff, you know, but, um, you know, that didn't sustain long. And then as soon as it starts decreasing, you can actually feel the, um, you could feel the difference between how much better off you were getting uh, an amount that would actually make you be able to live today you know because the fact is the amount that that people on Centrelink are receiving is still an amount that probably back when like the dollar was more I don't know how to explain I'm not really good at math I'm not really good at money but like <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> but not like, I, I'm there with you <laughs> but like around uh, <laughs> the fact that like um so what I'm trying to say is the fact is that you know um Centrelink payments have always stayed stagnant stagnant over you know the course of my life that I've I've, I'm privy to you know and um and you know every the cost of living has constantly gone up gone up and gone up you know so mm. you know I know from my experience you know I, I am working today and you know I'm grateful for that but from my experience and even just very recently like I know that you know being on Centrelink my main um with Centrelink I know that all my Centrelink money goes to paying my rent because for me, that's my priority. I don't want to be homeless again, you know. And you know, I'm blessed. At the moment. I'm blessed now to have, you know, my own place on with my own name on the lease instead of it being other people's. And then, you know, getting 
finding myself homeless, you know, so out of here I know I'm homeless, but I don't want to go back to that, you know, constantly battling, mm. you know, so I'm grateful for where I am today, but I also know that rent's my highest priority, but it doesn't give you, if I'm if I'm using all my settlement to pay rent and, you know, I, then I've got nothing else to live off, you know, and, like, what what's a person really to do, you know, Um so I don't know there's but you know that's me today I'm blessed with what I've got today having a house and stuff but what the past was the biggest battle you know constantly trying to survive constantly trying to figure out where I'm going to stay each night you know finding myself you know in situations that were very unsafe you know and like and not knowing where to go on the verge of suicide because I had no freaking no, I mean constantly trying to battle you know and the constant fear of being homeless again not just because of the hope being homeless but because of all the stuff that comes along with being homeless you know and then and then getting incarcerated and finding yourself you know leading down a trajectory of like just complete and other you know um helplessness and and feeling like you know how are you going to get out of this how can you get out of this rut you know when when the government don't provide the resources to help the people they show it looks like it because there's services here services there services here services there right but where's the actual resources being implemented so people can actually access something you know instead of it being oh yeah and then like you know constantly you know look you know frontline service providers and stuff like that you know are working you know endlessly trying to do stuff and wanting to help people but they can't because they're limited by the you know higher up and like limited by the resources that the government aren't providing so everything everything is just about money and that's what's what's shit sorry about my language but it's true it's all about capitalism and it's all about how can I make more money and how can I make you know the people who are struggling who cares about them they don't want to work or they don't want to do this or like all the stereotypes and stigma and stuff that's associated with that but that's not the truth the truth is people have you know um comorbidities there's a lot of issues that you know complex issues and there's a lot of things that happen you know people's mental health declines because of the fact that you know they're struggling with housing or they're struggling financially you know I know that when I'm if I'm struggling sorry I'm just talking a lot but I know that if I'm struggling um, (laughs) I know that when I'm struggling with you know finances and stuff like that like those that just puts you into a into a downward spiral just naturally mentally and emotionally and stuff like that because you know people need in this world people need that you know they don't say oh money doesn't buy you happiness but you need money in this world to actually survive in some way shape or form that you cannot get through life with no money in this world not in the way that you know um designed and it's it's sad to say that you know everybody who are people who own properties are reaping in the benefits while you know constantly people are staying um most people are paying rent and most people have to pay rent for the rest of their lives and nobody you know they don't get the opportunity to today because of the you know prices at the opportunity to be able to buy a place so they got that permanent stability and that's why money needs to go into public housing because public housing is is like a um is the only type of housing legit that is actually affordable secure yeah yeah affordable secure and it's you know, and people technically own it per se. Like would you would say that somebody would own a, a house in public housing more because of the fact that it's more stable and permanent than any other type of housing besides unless you buy a house for like a million dollars. It's like almost really, you know, out of rent. And I, 
no Sarah want for sure and I think everything that you've just said nails down perfectly as to why this event tonight is so important um, and why we need in Victoria to be facing this crisis head on yeah. um, and I just we're we're annoyingly we're at the end of the show coming up so we've only got a couple of minutes left but Mina, I just hope perhaps you could just finish us off with talking about maybe in your eyes what a post-pandemic Victoria looks like for housing. If you can, I mean, I'm going to give you a challenge now. If you can sum it up in 30 seconds. In I 30 mean, seconds? Uh, yeah, why not? Go, okay, right. got this. Um, <laughs> so, hard, I guess, here I go. Uh, I guess, here yeah, you go. The topics that we've talked about this morning and that we'll talk about tonight at the Rahu Forum are disproportionately impacting Aboriginal women and Aboriginal families. And I think that that's a great intersection that we are able to um, collaborate with with Rahu. And I think that uh, what we'd like to see from the Andrews government in this state election is uh, a reversal of spending on prisons when there is no public housing at all. And like Sarah has just so eloquently and rightfully put, Public housing is the only form of safe housing that exists. It is a human right. And I think that, yeah, that's the only way that we are going to stop these absolutely horrible numbers of women going to prison on remand for unfair and unjust reasons. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah and Minna, for talking to us today. Listeners, this is a free event, so there's nothing stopping you from getting online heading over to Eventbrite where you can find the tickets or you can go to Rahu and there's information on the website there. It starts at 5.30, it goes on until 7.30 and yeah, get yourself there. We'll be there too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show for this morning. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and we'll be back with you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.